Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Welcome to Wood Talk for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now, here are three guys who are actually under the illusion that woodworking is cool Mark, Matt, and Shannon. Welcome to Wood Talk number 198 for September 29th, 2014. On today's show, we're talking about steam bending versus bent lamination, uh, choosing your tools based on sharpening methods, and replacing your dust collector's filtration bags. All that and more coming up, but first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. How many hours did you invest in your last project? Why not finish it with hardware that's equal to your efforts? Brusso has been making high-precision hardware here in the U.S. for over 20 years. The entire line is available in brass and stainless steel at brusso.com. And while you're there, be sure to check out the new line of knife hinge installation templates. As a special offer to WoodTalk listeners, use the code WoodTalk at checkout for 10% off. And today's show is also sponsored by ArborTech. The new ArborTech Random Contour Sander is now available in the U.S. This new sander will make all of your sanding jobs a breeze. Watch the tool in action at arbortechusa.com. And we also want to thank a couple of donors, John Wilson, Eric Kudstall. Very good. That looks good to me. Thank you. Adam Winsek and Joel Harry. Thank you I very think much. I think you got the last one wrong. That's not Harry. Oh, that one was easy. Uh, thank you, everybody, for doing that. If you want to help out, too, you can sign up for a recurring donation or just a simple one-time donation at woodtalkshow.com. And that sort of viewer support is really awesome and helps us out a lot. We really appreciate it. Now, gentlemen, let's move into what's on the bench. Shall we? Or no? Do something um, else? Think about it? Okay. Okay, let's do it. All right. What the heck? Okay, so for me, I finally uh, got that little toy box. I say finally. It was a quick project uh, went together very fast in two hey, days didn't you start that like last week finally done Jeez. didn't you start that like six months ago oh, wait that was a bad yeah. never mind so toy box is done it just needs to be painted and i'm going to be using milk paint and you know i'll tell you what amazon really spoils people including me in terms of my expectations for shipping so i ordered milk paint from the the milk paint company and um it just took it seemed like it took forever to get here and i'm looking at the days on the calendar i'm like no you know what 
for a normal company, that's fine. It's just Amazon has me thinking everything's going to be there like the day before I expect it to arrive. Right, exactly. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so this stuff finally arrived and uh, tomorrow we'll be putting a little milk paint coating on it just to give it a little, um, I don't know, I think milk paint is great for certain projects, uh, not in my house necessarily. Um, but now I think for a kid's project, it's fantastic. I mean, depending on your decor, some people have like a, a country decor uh, that can handle a milk paint project and ours, it just doesn't look right. But on a kid's piece of furniture, I think it's fantastic. So I haven't really worked with real true milk paint before. So I'm really looking forward to it. I don't know. I think it would go beautiful right alongside that Krenoff uh, inspired cabinet you have there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, the two match each other perfectly. <laughs> it would be nice. Just paint the Krenoff cabinet. That's, there you go. That's true. Uh, Lost opportunity there. Raising Because you know... Somebody later on down the Spagnolo lineage will do that. Yeah, that that's <laughs> yep. true. Peeling, uh, yeah, and hundreds of years later, peeling those coats of paint off, and uh, yeah, that'll You'll be fun. You'll find that that unsightly um, quarter sawn sycamore. Quarter sycamore. My, my poor <laughs> yeah. choice in sycamore. Look like, at all what? the splotches in this. Who's got a thinking? Seriously, yeah. Uh, I wonder what happened to this thing. It must have been got wet or something. Look at the legs, kind of like all like I don't know, <laughs> yeah. curved out. The uh, legs curve out at the top. It's all wacky. Oh, my Lord. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, once the toy box is uh, completed and painted, I'll be moving on to the next project. I'm just kind of blowing through some household things that we need and uh, stuff that Nicole's requested. It's just kind of that time of year. And uh, the next thing is one of those kitchen helper that they call it learning towers, but I'm not sure I like that name. To me, it implies it's going to be something more than a glorified step stool. (laughs) (laughs) Like A learning tower should be doing a bunch of other things other than just lifting my kid up. 16 inches you learn about gravity <laughs> yeah that's what to it the is top. i mean i understand you're in it and then you learn stuff as you're in that thing but anyway point is i'm calling it a kitchen helper because that's what we're going to be using it for and uh you know he's at this age two three years old these kids are nuts and they want to be in everything and the only way to keep them out of trouble most of the time is to get them into things um, and make it a purposeful event for them. So like if Nicole's cooking or, she, you know, on the weekends if she's baking cookies or something like that, the boy wants in it. Now, he, he's weird. He doesn't eat the stuff. He never eats. Well, he hardly eats anything, but um, he'll make the stuff. He just doesn't care about eating it. But what we found is him getting involved. He actually will like be a little more adventurous and take a few bites of anything he cooks. Uh, so nice. yeah, so he doesn't need a lot of it, but it's like, okay, this is, this is cool. This is a positive thing. So this little kitchen helper allows him to kind of stand on it, be a part of it. And we don't have to worry about him just kind of like flipping off the side, <laughs> right? <laughs> which he's done several times already on just the regular step stool. Um, well, so. it, it just make sure you're not, he's not holding a knife or something. That would definitely be like one of those. <laughs> yeah. That's a double whammy. So you let him fall. And then the knife came with him or he fell on the knife. Which one is that? Either way, I'll pass on both of those. Thank you. Maybe I should like get one of those. If you build that, can you pass along to me how you did it? And uh, maybe I'll build one because then Samantha might allow me to be in the kitchen with her. uh, Because apparently right now I am completely useless. (laughs) Want to come and help little Matt? Get on your little kitchen helper. (laughs) Okay. Well, speaking of, uh, of knives and spoons, Shannon, what have you been up to? Yeah, this is a really interesting segue because, um, I had a lot of problems this weekend with little kids and knives. Um, <laughs> it was the fall. Of. Those little precocious. Precocious is the polite way of, of calling them little obnoxious brats. It was the <laughs> fall harvest festival at the Stepping Stone Museum this weekend. It's the last uh, weekend that we're officially open for the season. We do like a Christmas open house, but we're done until May now. And it's, it's usually one of the biggest 
days of the year and we had pretty much all hands on deck in the in the wood shop there was four of us there working and it was really cool because we were kind of in different areas of the shop one of the guys was on the lathe another was back at the bench another was over at the other bench and i decided to camp out kind of right up front and make an attempt at carving a spoon hmm. you know you it seems like it's gotten so popular i don't know whether it's peter follinsby or, or just maybe some of the people that i whose blogs I follow, I just, I see spoons coming up all the time. And I'm like, you know, that looks like kind of a fun thing. And I kept thinking it would be a really kind of engaging thing for visitors. Plus I had uh, a big branch, couple branches of Sycamore, uh, the power company trimmed in my backyard. And I, you know, I told the guy, you know, leave that here. And he said, okay, leave that here. Okay. <laughs> <Hey? laughs> <laughs> I finally managed to break the language barrier and tell him, don't take those branches. So I, I cut up a piece and I took it to the museum and, you know, started with a log and split it with a fro and all that fun stuff and was carving the spoon. And these two little kids, brother and sister, I want to say about five and maybe eight, the little girl was the oldest, very precocious. Mm-hmm. They came up and wanted to know everything I was doing, which was cool, you know, and you engage in the conversation and you're talking to them. They each had like eight hands because they were constantly reaching for my knives. <laughs> I had a regular straight pointed Sloyd knife and two crook knives for carving out the spoons. And, you know, they're, they're right there. They're not like out in the open. They're kind of right in front of me. I was sitting on a stump and I was using another stump as, as my little bench. My axe, fortunately, was sunk in a, a stump behind me so they couldn't get anywhere near that. But I was constantly saying, no, 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 that's really sharp. You know, be careful. You got to put that down. And then they'd reach for the other one. And I was just like, oh, my God. So I'm picking up and like putting them behind me. So, of course, as I'm carving and I switch from the outside of the spoon to the inside of the spoon, I need to switch knives. And I'm like rooting around behind me to find my tools. Couldn't find them because the little boy had snuck around me, picked up all of my knives and run off with them. I look up <laughs> just in time to see him darting out of the shop at full speed holding the straight knife like out in front of him like the worst possible way you would hold the knife and run with it not that there's ever a good way to run with a knife i'm just thinking oh my god i'm gonna get sued um the museum's gonna get shut down forever i run out of there and catch up with a kid and and you know what do you do how do i (laughs) scold this child there is not a parent anywhere nowhere and and I even asked him, and I said, where are your mom and dad? I don't know. And he, like, runs off again. Sounds like he the type of kid that he gets asked that question a lot. Yeah, seriously. Where are your, your parents? I don't have any. So I, I got my knives back, and I go back to the shop, and I'm working on the, the spoon. And then I needed to take a break to go get um, some lunch. So I packed up all of my tools. Normally, I would have just, like, moved them off the side because people don't, like, walk in and pick up the sharp stuff. They usually think about that. Or there's usually parental like oversight. Mm-hmm. So I pack it all up. I wrap all the, the knives and there's like a leather wrap that you use to protect the, the blades, put them in my toolbox in the back corner of the shop. I come back, you know, Italian sausage loaded up lemonade in hand, love and life. I see the little kid run by with my knife in his hand. <laughs> and I'm like a quarter mile from the wood shop at this point, other side of the museum. And I'm like, Hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm going to go carve some stuff. I said, that's not your knife. Now you're stealing my tools. And he's like, well, I didn't steal it. I borrowed it. And I was like, I so want to hit you right now. I just, I so want to cause you harm. But it was just, oh my God. It was in the five years I've been volunteering there. 
I've had nothing but pleasant experiences with kids. I've had a couple of really racist adults to deal with. Man, this was just awful. Like by the end of it, I never did find the parents. So anyway, nice. I ended up oh. with about a three quarter, three quarters of the way carved spoon. Enjoyed part of it. <laughs> I was just stressed out the rest of the time because of running and knives. Were you able to no, hear I, the, the Benny Hill music I was just playing? <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm thinking in my head is Shannon running around with these kids and the knives and Benny Hill music in the background. But more importantly, did you drop the Italian sausage and the lemonade during the chase? Because that's that's the thing I'm most concerned about. No. no that's actually, what, the one thing I was thinking is as, as you're retell, retelling this story, I'm wondering uh, if there's actually a audience member who's like, we had this great time this weekend at the Stepping Stone Museum. It turned out one of the guys totally entertained my children and showed them how to make uh, carving tools. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Jeez. That's crazy, say I'm man. glad the season's over. <laughs> It's all good. I, I, that's that's amazing. I, I can't follow that one up. Why don't we just move into what's new? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, man. Yeah, no, that's fine. No, uh, really. If j- just I, we have something that this weekend I actually got into the shop and I was able to make something that's going to be coming up on the next video, which is going to be holding the massive Vanderlist vinyl collection, which consists of like three albums that I think Sam actually had up on the wall. Hmm. So nice. But nice. that's I'm telling you, Shannon. That I, I can't beat that. That's awesome. I feel bad for you, but it's one of the best stories. It's stressful. It is entertaining because it's like every evening and someone else's kid. Every evening and weekend of my life sounds a lot like that. (laughs) Exactly. And it would be a lot more entertaining with Benny Hill music playing in the background when it happens. (laughs) Maybe, yeah, that should just be pumped throughout the Stepping Stone Museum because you know that there were other exhibits that probably were having the same issue with those people. They probably saw those kids move over towards your area and are like, Ah, sigh of relief. A break, finally. All right, let's move into what's new then. Uh, First one here is from Derek. He says, here's a cool video on how the mascot statue for the college I work for was created. It was done in the 50s. I wish they could have used a tree that had already fallen instead of cutting one down, but I guess it was a different time. And he also gave us an image or two of the statue as it looks today. So really old video, um, and it kind of just shows the process of creating it. And it's really neat to see that it's held up as well as it has. It actually looks really good uh, considering the amount of time that it's been out and exposed to the element. So uh, we'll leave the, the link there and the embedded video will be in the show notes for you. Absolutely. I was hoping that at some point as the people were uh, in the video, were heading towards where this particular tree was being brought down. I wanted to see them get out of like a station wagon and all light up their pipes and start heading in that direction with their penny loafers on. <laughs> right. <laughs> that would have totally made it. Yep. All right. Well, this next one comes in from Andrew and he says, hey, guys, I thought you might find this interesting. It's a blog post by an extremely meticulous woodworker on how he deals with checks in white oak. So I don't know if you had a, guys had a chance to head over and read this. I made sure just to follow along with it before we started the episode so that I wasn't like making some sort of wisecracks, which I normally would do. But to be honest with you, this guy was so meticulous in how he was taking care of some of these checks. The funny thing is the pictures are in black and white. And he has these little aids to kind of help him point out, like, look at this check mark. And I'm thinking, are you sure that's just not a Rayfleck? Because <laughs> I'm having a hard time seeing it. If it was my own project, I mean, obviously, we've seen some of, the, some of the wood I've worked with. I wouldn't even think about this. But in this particular situation, it sounds like he had a very uh, even more meticulous, possibly, uh, customer. And so he wanted to make sure that absolutely there were going to be no uh, embellishments. That's not the right word. Blemish on any of his projects. So that was the reason for going into the extreme depths of taking care of these checks that he found. In fact, it sounds like for this one part, he went through 
several different uh, lumber dealers looking for the right wood. And then he went so far as to make like seven different versions of this one component just to see how bad the checking would be on any of them. Jeez. Yeah. And that doesn't even include the part where he starts pumping epoxy into the various check marks. But again, kudos to him for having, you know, the patience to do something that extensive. I need to actually read it. I'm looking at the pictures and I don't quite, I I can't quite identify the problem to see, to to appreciate the solution. I think I really need to read this, but it's uh, very, does look detailed. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, And definitely uh, click on the photos, let them expand and keep on searching for what he's talking about. (laughs) It's a studio Tupla blog, by the way, it's a really good blog and it is one of those blogs where you can't just skim the pictures. Yeah, you gotta, lot, most of his posts are very detailed. He's obviously an incredibly fine furniture maker. Yeah, awesome. Absolutely. All right. Well, this is a video that came to me weeks ago, and I, I apologize. I don't remember who sent it to me. I had a devil of a time actually finding the reference in my email. Fortunately, there's this little history button in your YouTube account <laughs> that I was able to, to find it. But it is a... Uh, Japanese, I will just call him a Japanese American woodworker. I mean, he's definitely of, of Asian descent. I apologize if he's Chinese and I didn't get a close enough look. You really don't see him in, in the video, but it is obviously an Asian inspired table with a lot of Asian inspired techniques and tools and just, just awesome, mm-hmm. really entertaining, incredible joinery. Like he makes the table, he attaches the table with sliding dovetails so sliding dovetails across the entire width of the table and, you know, the, the fit is so tight that he hammers it in place and then has to use parallel clamps. I mean, what are those things like 2,500 pounds per square inch in order to slide this in place? He does this really cool edge treatment. So kind of a live edge, but he chisels it. It's just, it's really, really cool. And his uh, butterfly inlay process is really detailed. It's just one of those videos that you know it could have been on vimeo as far as the quality Mm. and kind of the artistic nature of it so just a a really entertaining one every now and then you come across one of those videos that like it could be 45 minutes it could be 90 minutes it doesn't really matter you'll just sit there captivated so there's a uh, point in there where he's doing the mortising using the hollow chisel mortiser and Mm -hmm. he's practically hanging on the handle to get enough weight down (laughs) to to to, like push through this wood i was like oh my gosh dude it's cool (laughs) because he's got like really old power tools and then really cool hand tools. It's something for everything. He's it's, it's, yeah, he uses a, he uses a mortiser. He uses a festal track saw to do some of the work and a lot of chisel work. Power planer. Yeah. The the one I will admit, uh, early on, he apparently is pushing it over a jointer and the angle, it makes it look like he's like almost laying on top of the jointer bed. And it's (laughs) like, he's going to push himself through it also. I don't know if you guys saw that. That freaked (laughs) me out just a second ago. That could be scary. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. definitely not the way I do it, although I'm sure some people would be like, you should try that. Yeah, and it's also one of those simple, it, simple might be the wrong word. The design seems simple, and then you go and actually look at all the detail that's in it, and especially that live edge. A lot of times a live edge is because it's, you know, just a natural edge the way Mother Nature made it uh, can be varied, you know, and, and sometimes you got areas that look nicer than others. And this, the way he like textured it with a, it seemed like a giant carving gouge. Um, the way he textured it made it nice and consistent all the way across, but still had that very live edge look to it, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, yeah absolutely I, I beautiful. Just think it was just great. I mean, the slats on the bottom, the design is great. The woodworking's great. The cinematography is great. Just yeah. 
It's a trifecta, people. Go watch it now. Stop listening to us and go watch it. Yes. No. No. No, Wait. no, no, no. Stick around to the end of this thing. Come back. Come on, Shannon. <laughs> yeah. Get with it. Yeah, oh, seriously. We didn't give you the link, so you got it. Those kids really messed you up this weekend. <laughs> We're going to go find those little punks. <laughs> He's all discombobulated. All right, let's move into our poll of the week from our good friend Tom Iovino at tomsworkbench.com. And last week we asked about tired woodworking debates. And by the way, I'll just say this week, we don't have a poll because I think there was a little snafu in the posting of the, the, uh, this week's poll. So, um, hopefully we'll have it fixed by the time you hear this. You can just go to the website and see what the latest one is. But last week we wanted to talk a little bit about tired woodworking debates. Now there's a lot of things listed here. I'm not going to go through all of them. I'll just talk about the most and least. Um, the, the one that people voted for saying it's like it needs to go is 39% an overwhelming uh, majority in this poll Hand versus power tools. Right. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, someone came in and made a comment about that and said how um, they, I wish I had excerpted his comment, but it basically was saying that what he wishes would disappear is hybrid woodworking. And no offense, of course, in brackets, no offense to Mark, um, but that he wishes that would disappear because the whole hand tool versus power tool debate is, you know, is annoying. And I had to, to remind him that the whole purpose of hybrid woodworking is to sort of destroy the hand versus power tool debate. Right. <laughs> so it was like, he completely contradicted himself in it, but, um, I can understand where he was coming from. I think what he meant was that he doesn't like there being another label on things. Um, right. but I think uh, in terms of our I- ideals and what we're trying to accomplish, I think every, everybody for the most part would rather see that, that dividing line disappear and just let's all call it woodworking. So the bottom line is when you get rid of hand versus power tools, hybrid woodworking goes with it, you know, right. but, but until then we need some terminology to talk about people's approach. Yeah. I think a lot of people confuse those terms or those ideas and think that it is one and the same, but you're right. It's it, it you're right. I'm not going to go any more into it, but it does make me want to create a brand new account and go in and say something like, hey, guys, you know what would be a great topic we should discuss? <laughs> hand, tools, hand tools versus power tools. I'm getting so excited about it. I can't even yeah. talk about it. It's just to see the reaction. I bet I could get a really good thread going on it. <laughs> All right. Well, well there, there's – oh, go ahead, Shannon. I, I don't want to beat the point, but it, this is kind of fresh because I responded to a couple of emails today. And what's interesting is the dividing line for the new guys coming in mm-hmm. that – very um, visible dividing line is yeah. is tainting new woodworkers to the point where they think they have to go one or have to go another yep. and that they are different. Um, and I had a couple of people who asked me today about like book recommendations and project book recommendations for hand tool projects. And I was just like, what do you mean? Like, d- d- I mean, other than Tom Fidgen's books, there really isn't a book that talks about a project built entirely by hand because it doesn't really matter whether you build it by hand or build it by power tools. It's a mortise and tenon or a dovetail or whatever. And how you cut it is, is up to you. You know, project books are measured drawings and, and that's it, you know? Right. Um, and there was, there was this like definite, I have to know how to do it by hand because that's different from how it would be done in power. And, you know, while I can understand, yes, you may use different tools or maybe use a jig where you wouldn't use a jig, it's still a mortise and tenon, you know? Mm-hmm. And I got into this conversation with this guy and it was like this light bulb moment came on for him. Like, oh, you mean I don't have to cut it differently? I don't have to use a different joint because I'm doing it by hand or I'm doing it by power. I was like, no, you use the same joinery. You build it the same way. Yeah. You just choose to execute the joints differently. And he, and he emailed me back. He's like, I can't tell you how excited I am to hear you say that 
because I was worried I was going to have to retool everything. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was, it was eye opening, and I felt so bad for the guy because he was afraid if he wanted to get hand tools, he was going to have to like relearn everything from the ground up. Yeah. So maybe this is a bit of an extreme example, but it just shows you what that kind of divisive nature taken, you know, one step further can actually do to, to woodworking. Yeah. Well, you know, furniture. I think, I think we see this a lot. I mean, I know for a fact, this is kind of a regular discussion that we have here in one way or another. And oftentimes I, I hate to kind of use this as, a, as an example, but it seems like we will frequently hear from people that they're almost asking us, like almost asking permission to do <laughs> certain things. Like somehow like, okay, I, I've gained enough levels of experience at such and such. Here's my resume that I just, you know, unloaded on you during this email. Can I have permission to do this? And it's like, <laughs> just do it. <laughs> yeah. No you rules, know, no it, rules. It, just it, do what you want to do and what makes you happy. Yeah, and, and do it how you want to do it, preferably safely. And preferably without Shannon have to chase you with his Italian sausage and lemonade. But at the same time, yeah, just enjoy it. Oh, did we just find the title of the show? Geez, all these like <laughs> terrible titles involving Shannon lately. Um, so anyway, so this poll goes out and there's a lot of things on this list that were low percentage. And the, what I took from that is these are debates that we should still have if people are saying that they're not tired debates, right? Right, ah, right, right, right. Okay. So what I was thinking we could do, I don't know how this is going to go, but uh, we, horribly is I think how it's going to go. And, and in all likelihood it will. So in true like high school debate team style, I'm going to take one of the lower percentage uh, debates and, and pin you guys, pit you guys against each other on this. Do we one. have to wear sport coats. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> uh, so let's see. I've got one. This, this one should be good. All right. It's mortis or 10 and first. Now, here's the thing. I don't care which you actually agree with. You need to present the argument for why yours is the right way to go. So, Matt, you're going to be the Mortis first and Tenon second guy. And okay. Shannon, you're going to be the uh, Tenon first and Mortis second guy. All right? So present your present your arguments in, uh, as, as quickly as you can. And then, uh, Matt, you'll go first. And then, Shannon, you can do the follow-up. No rebuttals. Okay. We're just going to move through this quickly. Okay, because I said so. And I'll pick a winner. Okay. Because I said so. Oh, okay. That's it? Uh, yes. No, actually, I will say this much. Uh, when it comes to doing the mortise, I, in my own experience and from uh, other people that I've talked with, oftentimes the, the mortise tends to be the thing that often will not come out the dimension that you originally thought it was going to be, depending on whether you use uh, – I oftentimes, my technique, I will drill it out and then I come in with a chisel and I will clean up the walls that way. And inevitably, I will always make it much larger. And as a result, I can create a little slightly oversized tenon and it's easier for me to use uh, my existing tools to bring that tenon out, down slightly just enough until it fits into the mortise perfectly. Okay. That's acceptable. Shannon, I gave you the hard one. Okay. <laughs> Why should someone cut the tenon first and then the mortise second? Because it's Matt, what Matt said. No, um, I think, yes, Matt's got a point that, you know, sometimes the mortise comes out more uh, unexpectedly, but I think that's even more reason why you would want to cut the tenon first, because now you've got something that you know you're shooting for. Um, so if you've cut your tenon, you now have a set dimension and I find it's really easy to lay out the location of the mortise and the width of the mortise and up and down and vertically and horizontally. If you already have your tenon set and 
what I've found is the most important thing is that fit longitudinally um, across the width of the tenon. Mm -hmm. Certainly the glue surface across the, the thickness of the tenon itself is really important. But if you can get a nice compression fit by fitting across the width, um, in other words, making your mortise just a little bit, what, shorter, then you're going to get a fit that's going to last a lot longer. It's actually a technique used in Japanese joinery where you get that compression fit more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So if you already have your tenon cut and laid out, you can exactly mark the length of that mortise and you can even stay a little shy of that and go for that compression when you fit it. And you won't know that until you've got the tenon already cut. Hmm. Okay. Um, let me ask you this. Do you, what do you actually do? <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was good. And I'll tell well, you what, you know what? Not always, not always. Sometimes, yeah, so, sometimes um, it calls for the tenon first. Yeah. Uh, like it, I just put out a video today where I was cutting bridles and granted bridle is just an open mortise, but I cut the tenons first cause I just found it was easier cause of the angled shoulder. Yeah, to, yeah. to lay it out. I actually did use the tenon itself to lay it out, but nice. now I'm, I'm with Matt. I mean, if I set the, you know, the mortise, if I can do it with a chisel, a single chisel, you know, um, or router bit, however you want, that's the fixed dimension, right? You don't yeah. want to chop a mortise or route out a mortise with a bit or a chisel that's narrower than your dimension. And then sure. you're going to make multiple passes and everything. It's just ridiculous. Okay. So right. that's the kind of the fixed dimension. And then it's really easy to, to gauge your tenon off of that. Nice. All right. Well, I tallied everything up. I kept score and I have to give this one to Shannon and it's not because I even agree with him, but I think he made the best BS argument for <laughs> doing yeah, right. it that way. That almost I, made me believe him. <laughs> I agree. I agree with you. I was actually taking notes and I was thinking, man, I hope this shows up in a, a, an episode of the hand tool school soon because yeah. this sounds amazing. Yeah. I had a feeling it wasn't what you did, but I thought you did a good job <laughs> of, uh, of presenting the argument. So well, I want to thank the Academy. <laughs> well done, mostly, sir. <laughs> mostly I want to thank Jay Van Arsdale for his great video on Japanese joinery, because that's exactly where I pulled that from. Yeah. <laughs> nice. nice. I could totally see a reason reason for it in certain instances, but I think most times it's like, do, do whatever's going to dictate the fixed, you know, the, for me, the, the, like you said, the router bit or something is going to give you a fixed dimension and then match the other thing to it. It's hard to do that the other way around. So unless it's a special situation, me too, I'm always doing the mortise first. Um, all right, well, that's all we'll do. I don't want to, uh, do too oh, many. Thank things. God. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I know that's rough. <laughs> stressful. Well, then I, I would be, I would feel obligated to, to participate myself on the next one and I don't want to. So let me tell you, I've got a ton of windows <laughs> open up right now with possible joinery or other woodworking topics that you could choose from. So yeah. I'm ready to go. Yeah, plenty. <laughs> all right, let's move into our emails. I uh, got one here from Dusty. It says, Hey, did I answer something from Dusty? No, that's Derek. Or I had a D name in my head from earlier. Okay, Dusty says, I've always used bent lamination when creating a piece that needs it. However, I've been seriously considering building a steam box and trying my hand at steam bending some wood. I'm in Phoenix. Heyo! Uh, so it's a little challenging to get air-dried wood, but not an impossibility. However, I heard your discussion about steaming kiln-dried wood recently. Just wondered what your thoughts are on steam bending versus bent lamination Excuse me, in regards to time, uh, money, springback, etc. So now, here's the thing. I have done a decent amount of bent lamination in, in uh, my woodworking time. I have done zero steaming, but I've read up on it and know a little bit about it uh, theoretically. So I, I kind of presented what I see as the pros and cons of each one of these methods. And feel free, guys, if you have anything to add to it um, or anything that you disagree with, let me know. Um, so when, when it comes to steaming, the way I see it, the pros are, it's probably going to be less expensive, but you do need a rig to do it. But the materials you need to get to that point 
it's it's much fewer than lamination. You don't need a bandsaw or drum sander, things like that. So I think it is less expensive. Um, you do have to uh, be careful about what wood you use. Wait, that's not a pro. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, it depends. For the uh, the wood industry, they might be, you know, there's this one type that really works best for us. <laughs> Maybe if you promote that. There we yeah, go. I've mixed up my pros and cons. Okay, so it's less expensive. Uh, no harsh chemicals, really, right? Because you're taking a piece of wood, you're exposing it to steam, you're breaking down the cellular structure, bending it, and boom, you're done. So you don't have any dangerous chemicals to deal with in terms of like adhesives. Um, you also get the the benefit of continuous grain, which is really nice because the grain is going to follow the shape because you bent it that way. And if you are cutting the pieces, sometimes you don't have as uh, continuous looking of a presentation because you've got laminations with glue lines. Um, so the cons as far as I see it, are that you've uh, got to be careful about what wood you use. That's one I got mixed up before. Some woods may not bend as well as others. Um, you may have more spring back with something like steam bending. And I think you're you're going to be limited in part size and thickness. I mean, you can only go so thick because the steam has to penetrate through the thickness of the material. And you can only make uh, pieces that are big enough to fit in the steam box that you built for whatever project. And you want to reuse this thing. So you want to make it pretty big. But obviously, there's limitations in how large it can be and still be effective. So you do have uh, part size limitations to confront. Now, on the bent lamination side, the pros, less spring back for the most part because you're really you know, sort of destroying the integrity of the wood in a way by cutting it into thin slices and then bending it into shape. So you have less, uh, less prone to spring back. Um, pretty much any wood can be used for this process, which is nice. It doesn't matter what it is. You're cutting it so thin that you'll be able to bend it. Uh, you've got more flexibility in part size and fewer limitations, uh, and more consistency when making multiples. So if you have, you know, you do that with steam bending, sometimes you you may get different properties of each piece. Maybe they don't spring back exactly the same amount. So each piece is just slightly different. You tend to get a little bit more consistency when you're doing a bent lamination process. And the cons of bent lamination, more expensive. It requires a good bandsaw. And ideally, if you can, a drum sander. Um, you're going to make more waste because you're cutting and sanding each one of these little pieces to get to the number of laminations that you need. Um, you might wind up working with some nasty glues. There are some uh, pretty, like Urac 185 and Unibond 800. Unibond has gotten better. Uh, they have a new, more environmentally friendly formulation, but it's still not the funnest glue to work with. So that's something to keep in mind. And finally, visible glue lines. Laminations, you have a glue line between each one of those pieces. And even though it's bent and following the curve and you could do everything in your power to minimize the effect of that glue line, it can still be seen sometimes. In lighter color woods, it tends to get even more obvious. Um, so for me personally, I'm a big fan of bent lamination, but I do like the some of the pros of steaming. There may be a time in my future where I decide to try and steam some stuff instead of uh, doing a bent lamination. Um, but that's how I see it. Anything you guys can add or subtract from that? I no. think that the, the spring back thing tends to be a little overblown. Um, uh, for um, steam bending? Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, see, because I'm coming from the opposite, opposite perspective i've only the only bent lamination i've done was a small desk clock so it was really tiny but i've done steam bending on the four windsor chairs that i've made and if you you know bend it around the form and certainly you can leave it in the form for a long long time you don't have a problem but if you put it in a kiln most of the windsor makers i know build little like small box kilns and like line it with aluminum foil and put grow lights and i mean not grow lights um yeah 
they they turn it into a kiln. And when <laughs> you put the the piece in in the form, clamped in the form, and leave it in the kiln for like two days, um, you get like next to no spring back. Nice. Okay. So I've always heard that you get a lot more unpredictable spring back with bent lamination. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't hmm. know. At least that's what David Marks told me on Woodworks. <laughs> he was always always bending his stuff and then like doing his drawings after because he never knew how much it was going to spring back. Well, the, there's always unpredictability the first time you do it. Right. The consistency comes when you have multiples. Once you know what the spring back is, generally speaking, because again, you're going down to such thin strips that like no matter what the wood is, the integrity is destroyed. And now it's just a lamination of thin layers of wood separated by glue. So each one of those pieces for the most part should end up at about the same place, but you still need to figure out what that first one is going to do. And you don't know that until you do it. Yeah. Usually. I think the the biggest thing with, with steam bending is, is that wood challenge. Now I've been told that you can steam bend kiln dried and I know boat builders who do it. Clients of mine that, you know, because they just can't get air dried. It's next to impossible in quantity. So they make do and they steam bend kiln dry. But the big issue is is grain run out. If the grain is running out at all, and if it's a drastic bend, it will split yeah. while, you, while you're bending. So you've got to put a lot more thought into preparing the wood, and you really need a good, preferably a nice ring porous wood. So that you know that, that actually really hard to overcome. That's another. Well, it's it's hard to call it a con because it's about knowledge, but that is something that makes steaming a little bit difficult. That I totally left out is the fact that you probably need more experience and more of a knowledge base to pull off uh, steam bending as well as you could pull it off with bent lamination. With bent right. lamination, you just need to, to make a form and be able to cut thin strips and glue them together. If you can do that, you could pull I it off. I seem to remember, though, it was um, the very first Fine Woodworking Live, um, the reports with Michael Fortune was like steam bending like posts mm-hmm. out in the in the, the quad. Um, and he was using things like maple and such. So leave it to Michael Fortune to, you know, countermand common... Um, common understanding uh, that you have to have ring porous and all that stuff. So, well, he is Canadian is and they have different rules for stuff like that. So, <laughs> yeah. cool. All right, Shannon, you're up. All right, this comes from Josh. He said, I happened to be watching Roy Underhill the other day and he was mentioning how he likes to use the easiest to sharpen tool first. For example, slicing most of the material for a raised panel with a chisel and refining it with hand planes. This got me thinking do any of you guys use this sort of process in your woodworking? Absolutely, Josh. It's kind of everywhere in my woodworking. Um, and I think especially as as a person who builds, you know, with hand tools, it is something that I have to be very aware of. When I'm cutting moldings, I do like 95% of the molding with a rabbit plane, a nice straight bladed rabbit plane. And the hollows and rounds do like three or four passes at the very end because the 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 rounds, well, the hollows specifically can really be a pain uh, to sharpen because it's that concave surface. But the, the the convex surface of a hollow can be just as daunting sometimes, specifically with like complex molders where you've got like, you know, a, 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 a ovalo or, you know, a quirk OG or something like that. Those are a royal pain in the butt to sharpen and you need multiple different little files and diamond stones and all that stuff. So you keep that sharp as long as you can. The same thing would uh, apply to, um, well, actually just this weekend while I was making a spoon, I used an ax to probably, I'd say at least 70% of the shaping was done with an ax. 
because that's just a straight blade. It's really easy to sharpen an axe, whereas those little crook knife things are kind of a pain. Knives in general can be much more difficult because you've got two bevels that have to meet in an exact angle. So I leave that to, you know, the last couple of passes anywhere I can. And I mean, I think that's the same in just about everything I do. You know, you brought up the raised panels, the same thing. I do have a panel razor, but I will do most of the work with a jack plane and then come in for those last couple of passes with a panel razor. Hmm. Um, do you guys think, can you think of examples in the power tool world where it would be the same type of deal? No, because most yeah. of the time you're not doing the sharpening. Um, yeah, I can't really. I was trying to think well, of that and I couldn't come but up. But at the same time, there might be something where uh, you want to hog away a little bit of uh, of the material so then you can come in with, say, a certain profile of a router bit so that you're not having to come in and maybe make as many passes with it to, to get down to it. I'm thinking maybe, uh, I don't know, like a, a large... Um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, like uh, not, uh, totally pull, pulling up. Like, I can see the the shape, like a cove or something like that, mm-hmm. where you might hog away on an angle or something some of the material, and then that just means that you can come in and do the pass with the router bit uh, in just just a couple of passes. Where ordinarily, because of the size of it, you might have to come in and, and remove more of it. This might be even a situation where, with a, a panel raising bit, a rather large one. Sometimes it might be, you know, quick to remove a big chunk of wood first and then come in with that. Well, same. It's the same outcome and the same process, but for a different reason. You're not doing it because you want to maintain necessarily. I mean, sharpness. You, you may do it because you want to maintain sharpness, but you're probably not going to be doing a lot of the, the resharpening on this stuff. A lot of it is just to get better results. Uh, yeah. For instance, I'm doing a long, uh, I don't know, like a long sliding dovetail. Um, I'm going to use my table saw if I can to hog away the material first, just a couple of straight cuts to clear out that space and then use the dovetail bit. So it's got a much easier job with less chatter. I get better results if most of the stuff is removed already and I just have to make a couple of light passes, but it isn't a sharpening issue. It's just a general sort of common sense workflow issue that makes things easier. Right. right. It's the same reason I removed dovetail waste with a fret saw because it's really easy to pair to the baseline than chop. Now in that instance, I am saving chisel edge there, but I'm more concerned about it just takes a lot longer. Yeah. And a lot more pounding um, if I don't saw it out first. Right. Yeah. I, I still, in, in my mind, in this weird place that it is, I see the two as kind of being very, very similar. But yeah, you're right. It's, it's, they're along the same lines, just worded differently as far as I'm concerned. Well, and I would, I would wonder too if some of the things that have their origins in, handhold processes from, you know, years ago, um, work their way into the power tool world as habit. You know, it's just common practice to do this before that. And it stems from that sort of logic. But right. although the logic is sort of lost on us at this point, if you're really heavy into the handle stuff or uh, right. power tool. Right. Yeah. Cause considering the fact that you could have a uh, power tool that has like four, five horsepower and you just yeah. like just shove it through and you're like, what are you talking about? I'm yeah. not worried about anything slowing down. It doesn't care. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the long story Sweet. short, Josh, the answer is yes. Boom. That's always my favorite answer, to be quite honest with you. Sweet. Well, let's move on to this next question, which comes in from Jeffrey. And Jeffrey asks, I just bought my first dust collector, a shop, shop fox. One and a half horsepower, 1200 CFM. By the way, uh, Jeffrey, I think you and I might have the same exact dust collector. So I feel a little confident in answering this question just a little bit. He says, I made my decision based on what was the best I could afford and went a little past that. Now, the downside is that it comes with a 30 micron bag. Knowing this, I also purchased a one micron aftermarket bag for the top. 
Now that I have it together, I'm wondering if I shouldn't replace the bottom bag with a one micron bag. What I want to ask is whether or not, in your opinion, this will impede the airflow to the point that will either damage the motor or reduce the airflow to the point of making it ineffective. So typically, Jeffrey, one thing I'm thinking is I'm not really concerned about that lower bag. It's going to be filled with dust. It's amazing how fast that cakes that bottom bag. So while there is still some airflow going through it, it's not anywhere near as much as the top should be. And in fact, if you happen to notice a lot of uh, dust collectors these days have uh, plastic bags that you can get, so you don't even have to worry about emptying the bottom bag. You just take that one off, put another one on, and as a result of that, it already has me thinking that the bottom bag is nowhere near as important as having the airflow through the top bag. So I don't really think you're too concerned about it. Perhaps having the smaller micron bag on the bottom just simply means right up from the get-go, you're not going to have nearly as much of that sawdust uh, flying out as you would with the the so much larger 30 micron bag. Uh, but at the same time, I, I the only thing I'm really concerned about is that top bag and making sure that I'm getting good airflow going through it because that's, as far as I'm concerned, what's going to impede your, your suction and going from there. What, what do you guys say? Do we, what type of bags do you have on yours? Now, Shannon, you still have one, don't you? Yeah, and I, I have a I, mine's a steel city, but it's a one and a half horse, probably the okay. same specs. But I always thought you wanted an impermeable bag on the bottom. Well, yeah, for no wanna, other reason to... than when I empty it, it's not like, you know, ballooning out dust everywhere when I move it out of the out of the garage. But it seems to me you want to direct your exhaust towards the top, right. away from, you know, where the actual dust and the chips and stuff are going. I don't, I don't know the, the, aerodynamics of the thing how, how that affects anything but i'm trying to think back to my original delta that had a cloth bag on the bottom and i remember when i moved to the steel city one it came with plastic bags and it was like so much better mm-hmm. um, first of all because i could see it because i have a tendency <laughs> to not like empty it and then it like fills up into that top bag and that's a real Ugh, pain yeah. up. that that is a lot of fun to clean up <laughs> would you want to direct the exhaust you know, so if you have an impermeable bag on the bottom, which first of all, as as it does fill, it is going to um, direct it more to the top anyway because the air won't flow through the dust. I always thought you you wanted like that makes more sense to me. And part yeah. of the part of the problem is when you go to empty the bag and you're dealing with that. Like that's one of the things that drives me nuts is whenever I have to empty something that's supposed to be saving my lungs by protecting me and I go to move it. <laughs> And just the act of moving it to the garbage can puts so much, like a year's worth of dust <laughs> into the air. Right. You have uh, to suit up to empty your dust collector in a hazmat yeah, suit. Exactly. I actually have to have the family clear out of the house whenever I've had to do mine because at some point, inevitably, I'll end up dropping it. But yeah, as soon as you undo that little belt, suddenly poof, everything's right yeah. up in there. And I'm like immediately like, okay, it turns out I am allergic to hickory. <laughs> this is going to be fun. <laughs> at these exposure levels? Yes, I am. Well, I actually wheel everything out to the front of the shop and dump everything in the garbage can out there. And I do the, I put my mask on, so I've got dust protection uh, on my face, but I do the sort of dump and run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> I dump the can and I take off running toward the shop and wait till it clears out before coming back. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a big push. Uh, the reason why there's been a big push for more like those plastic bags on the bottom. Again, it's more about containing it than anything else. And it's those top bags as far as I'm concerned. And actually, I did kind of go and look at a uh, 
aftermarket bag manufacturer, and that's pretty much all they talked about was those top bags. It was like almost no concern about the bottoms. In fact, they were happy to sell you the plastic ones. So hmm. when it comes down to it, Jeffrey, I really think it's the top bag is the only one that you really need to be concerned about. Yeah, I can't overstate the benefit of having a see-through collector bag. It, it seems silly, but actually being able to see the level of your of your collector, because especially on on these smaller collectors like the one and one and a half horse, as that lower bag gets full, it does reduce the suction quite a bit. Because you just think about it, there's less volume uh, available inside the unit. So a lot of times, if I let it go, well, first of all, if it gets above about three quarters full, it's a real mess to empty. Yep. But there's a pretty big difference in suction from that halfway point to the three quarter full point. Um, yeah. And being able to and see th- that. that's a, at myself right now, it's the halfway point that I end up, I have to consciously remind myself to get over there. And at the halfway part, no matter how much I don't want to do it, I have to remove it at that point because I, like you said, I, I've, I've noticed an immediate reduction in suction. And on top of it, that cloud is going to be so much bigger. Yep. Nobody likes the cloud. Nobody likes the cloud. (laughs) All right. Well, if you want to support Wood Talk, we'd appreciate it if you would. Just go to woodtalkshow.com, look over in that left-hand column, and you'll see a couple of uh, donation links there for small one-time donation or uh, recurring donation, which is really cool of you to do. And you can also pick up a Wood Talk shirt at twwstore.com. We've got some nice ones there for you to pick out. Beautiful blue shirts. They look great. And you can also leave us a review in the iTunes store. Just click on ratings and reviews and give us that sweet, sweet five-star rating, just like Neurowood did. He says, best knowledge source for beginners. I believe that the best people to learn from, be it for career or hobby, are those who are genuinely as obsessed with their craft and driven to openly share their knowledge versus those who only look to profit from their expertise. Uh, these three gents are the f- of the first kind. I'm glad he said that. <laughs> and they're all th- could have gone the other way and their authentic approach is what makes this such a successful podcast worth learning from and supporting thank you mark matt and shannon and thank you neurowood we appreciate that absolutely that's the nicest things anybody said about me all day good man neurowood or <laughs> woman or neuro individual yeah it doesn't specify anyway um yeah so that's ways you could support us and matt how about you give them the contact info and we'll get out of here All right. Hey, folks, do you have a comment, question, or maybe some more amazing babysitting tips just like Shannon had for us earlier on? You have several different ways to contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is WoodTalkOnline. Call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. Email us at WoodTalkOnline at gmail.com, or you can leave us a comment on our WoodTalk Facebook page. And you know what? If you're ever looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or previous episodes – who knows, we might even get some video snippets of people watching Shannon running around with his Italian sausage and lemonade, chasing the kids with the <laughs> knives. You're going to find all that stuff over at woodtalkshow.com. Please, please, please tell me somebody caught that on video because that's going to be the best ever. Check your local police blotter for a man chases child with Italian sausage. That's a classic right there. Instant classic. Oh, by the way, we've got a 200th show coming up. We're on Wood Talk 198 with this show, so a couple more. Uh, if you have ideas, we're kind of lost for ideas not sure that we can really execute anything crazy or you know awesome but if you have ideas for what you'd like to hear on the 200th episode of wood talk let us know if it's something we can do we'll do our best to make it happen but it's one of those things where it's like i don't know i don't know is it bad or good like nicole and i for instance for our anniversary to us a great anniversary is like hey happy anniversary 
okay, yeah, you know, made another, another year. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, we don't make too big of a deal about it. It's just, you know, every day is, is, is awesome uh, in, in this relationship. And so it's kind of the same thing with you guys. Like the 200th episode is just another episode. Um, so yeah. I, w- I wouldn't want to waste the time doing all kinds of things that people don't even want to hear. So if you have an idea for what you'd like to hear on the 200th show, just give us some kickback on that. Leave a comment or send us an email uh, using the contact form on woodtalkshow.com. And, as long uh, as it's not hand tools versus power tools. Yeah, no debates. Or maybe, maybe well, the whole show. The hybrid woodworking. That's a good one. The people whole show could episode. be, uh, it could all be mock debates from start to finish. Yeah, because if people want a taste of anything that we've attempted to do uh, in the past, just listen to any of the anniversary shows. One of my favorite ones is the, uh, uh, the, the when the knitters supported us. Um, <laughs> was that the 200th? I thought that was April Fool's. And that was something like that. It was one of the anniversary episodes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, and that's right, because our, our anniversary is on April Fool's. That's right. Yes. Well, either way, 200 shows, even if we don't do anything crazy and we just give you another show, 200 shows in a podcasting world is like, I don't know, what's that like? Um, it's like the it, Yankee it, workshop. It's like 50th anniversary. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It's amazing that we're still around. Anyway. You know what? We should just take it off. That's what we'll do for the 200th episode. We'll just. <laughs> Don't do a show. Yeah. It'll Yay just us. be an hour static. <laughs> we should just take it live and, and pipe in like fireworks sounds. There you go. I like it. Anyway, if you have ideas, let us know. Until then, we will uh, catch you next time. See ya. See ya. You kid, give me my knife back. Network. For more information about this and other shows, visit frogpants.com. Audio program so good, it's like you're there. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.